The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately, with haste, to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We were in the Gospel of Mark for a few months from the very beginning of January through early April, and then we took a seven-week break to, to study something else. 
peacemaking and conflict. And now after Pentecost, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll study Mark, the next six or seven chapters of it, over the course of the summer. And if you're with us for uh, the first five chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you're seeing themes here in chapter six that we've already seen. For instance, Jesus enters synagogues like he does at the beginning of chapter six. We've seen this already. He enters synagogues in towns around the northwest region of the Sea of Galilee. Um, today, it's the town of Nazareth where he was from originally. And when he goes in and teaches and does these mighty acts in the synagogues, there's a mixed response. Some people receive him and want to hear more and even begin following him, and others reject him. And in this case, of course, in his hometown, he's largely rejected. So when Jesus is rejected in his hometown, we see him do two things. First, he just leaves, and he starts teaching in other towns. But secondly... He goes to his 12 apostles, those who have been following him most closely, those who we saw him call in chapter 3. And he gives them his authority and sends them out in six pairs, two by two, to do what he has been doing and to be received in exactly the same way as he was received, or not. He tells them, some are going to receive you, others are going to reject you. So. The broad point being made, and actually it's important that we looked at all 30 verses here, I don't know if you noticed, but this is more text than we usually take on in one sermon study. But the broad point being made through the whole passage is this. Jesus gives his authority to his apostles and sends them out to be received as he is received and rejected as he is rejected. He tells them, Expect some reception, but also expect some disappointing rejection and even death. There's a woman who went to this church for four to five years. Her name was Erin Selker. And 08 to 2013, she and her husband Steve and her children went to this church. And she died about 10 days ago at the age of 40 of pancreatic cancer after struggling with it for about a year and a half. And the funeral was just on Thursday. And over the course of the struggle with pancreatic cancer, she had a little slogan that she became known for. And there's a lot of talk about this in articles that went out about her life. Uh, and I'm sure in the funeral on Thursday, although I was sadly not able to make it. Many of you were. Some of you were able to make it. She chose a slogan, victory either way. Victory either way. If I make it through, if I succeed in the struggle, if I overcome cancer, victory. If I succumb, victory. I'll be with Christ. Victory either way. And, you know, Aaron Selker wasn't going door to door or town to town sharing the news about Jesus to people who had never heard the name, but she really was, because towns and people from individual homes came to her to say goodbye and to watch how she was handling losing her hair and saying goodbye to her five children and getting closer and with, with no um, denial about it. 
in saying this, victory either way, victory either way, it was, there was something apostolic about it. There was like a sentness about it right where she was, because this was sent to her so that something could be sent through her to all these people gathered around her bed, bedside. Victory either way. Victory either way in life, victory either way in discipleship. And last week, in, we, we looked at the day of Pentecost. And of course, this is what it means to follow Jesus, is to receive the authority of his Holy Spirit. Just like the apostles received his authority in Mark 6, we all who come to faith in Jesus and are baptized as that external sign of our new life in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit and we are sent in one way or another into the world comprised of those who don't know him. All the apostles, Aaron, you, and me. One of the really interesting things here, though, is the contrast, and, and, and this is inc uh, completely intentional, and it's, it's the reason why I chose the text this big. This passage starts with the sending of the twelve, and then Mark, the Gospel writer Mark, very intentionally, in a way that's not really the normal order of how the events played out, but to make a theological point, he inserts in the middle of the story of the sending out of these twelve, the death of John the Baptist, the gruesome beheading of John the Baptist, and then he bookends it again by talking about the apostles one more time. Right after John is beheaded, we end in verse 30. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He's saying, look at these sent ones. They're pretty successful. Verse 13 says they were casting out demons. They were healing people. People were coming to faith. They were relatively successful. I'm sure there was some rejection along the way, but the broad story of them coming back from these towns they went to was people heard, people were healed, demons were cast out, authority worked. That's how it starts. Then we get the story of John, who was as faithful as anyone else, and got his head cut off. And then the narrative ends with Jesus saying, one more time. Great job, it went really well for you. Victory either way. They were successful. John got his head cut off. That's the story. What do we make of all this? Remember, first of all, John the Baptist had his successes too. In the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we looked at the first week of January, we read, the entire Judean countryside was going out to be baptized by him. It's probably an overstatement because we know people were standing back getting, it's definitely an overstatement, but it's a broad statement to make a point. He was so immensely popular that you couldn't find a town where there were several people that you would know who had been out to see John. It was wildly popular, weird, strange, not somebody that you wanna like watch the game with, but really successful as a minister of the gospel. He had his successes, but one wrong phrase to the wrong person's spouse, the King Herod's spouse, led to his rejection, and eventually it led to death for him. Of course, if you know the whole story of these gospel narratives, we're not holding on to the surprise ending. Jesus gets a cross, and then a resurrection at the end. So of course, there's a foreshadowing here of what Jesus himself will experience. He's received by many. He is ultimately rejected in the worst possible way. The cross is our symbol, right? The cross of Jesus is the symbol for the church. 
And what's the cross? The cross is the simultaneous death sign, defeat sign, rejection sign. But what else is it? The cross, the tool of Jesus' death, the instrument of his excruciating torture and execution is also the sign of his victory. Because, of course, Jesus' death led to the victory over death itself. Death couldn't crush God. God crushed it going through it. So the cross itself is a symbol at the same time, both of rejection and victory. Let me put it this way. The cross, when you look at the cross, I'm talking about victory either way. This was Aaron's phrase, right? Victory either way. The cross isn't so much a sign of victory either way. It's a sign of victory this way. The way of the cross. Somehow, in a strange backward way, is the sign of victory for the Christian. The way of victory for the Christian. John's story also foreshadows not only Jesus' death, but if you know the stories, if you know the book of Acts, uh, the same Herod kills James, the brother of John, one of the inner circle, James, John, and Peter, who go up the mountain with him, who he first met fishing on the Sea of Galilee. James meets the same death by the same guy that John the Baptist did. The apostles face this too. So John the Baptist's story also foreshadows what the Twelve will experience. But here's the thing, and I think this is really interesting. The Twelve get success in this narrative. Just success. Why? I think we know why, although I'm not sure. I think they get success in this narrative because they're not ready. They're not ready for the news of the way of the cross. Uh, very soon as we work through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus beginning to predict his death. He starts talking about the fact that he's going to meet his death in Jerusalem, and they reject this news. They can't bear to hear this news. They can't understand this news. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah of Israel. You're the son of David. You're the one who holds all of our hopes, and death means an end to our hopes, of course, because it's death. They can't bear it. They can't bear the news that following Jesus involves that kind of rejection as well as reception. So for them, for today, Jesus has them returning in verse 30, just telling them all their success stories. It was great, Jesus. I mean, the demons were cast out and people were healed. It went great. It worked. But that's not the end. I want to take a moment and try to apply this to our hearts, okay? And I want to be really sympathetic with the apostles and we need to be because we're going to see them struggling along the way. And in their struggle, we need to see our own. As we keep working through this gospel, as we keep coming against disappointment and rejection and even death in our own lives. Victory either way is a very difficult way to live. Can you just take a moment and imagine for a second? If it were you today, if today you found out today is the day your life will be required. Today is the day your life will be required for following Jesus. What would your first response be? What would your reaction be? Now you begin to understand a little bit more of their position. Let me put it a little bit more on the nose. What if it were you today? Today, 
you receive the diagnosis, you have stage four pancreatic cancer. What would your first thoughts be? What would your reactions be? Would it be victory either way? Would this be just what would roll, <laughs> roll out of your lips? Victory either way. I think everyone might have a different answer to this, to be fair. This is, these are personal questions. Let me back up and ask a more general question that I'll go ahead and tell you. I do not think there is an answer to this question. Why are some taken earlier than others? Why this one and not that one now? Look, I know, yeah, in, 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 in 100 years, <laughs> you know, we're not going to be here in this way in this version of our mortal life. We're not going to be here in 100 years. Yeah, we can all kind of think there and reach for that, but that's not where we live. Why her and not her? Why him and not, and not him? Why me and not them? You know, in Acts 12, James is killed by Herod and Peter's in prison awaiting the exact same fate, and Peter is led out by an angel and escapes. Why did Peter get to, get to go free? It's not fair. It makes no sense. They're both apostles. They were both part of the inner circle. Why, why him and not him? Or you can ask this question about different arenas of life. Again, I don't know the answer. It doesn't stop us from, from asking the question. Why are some rejected more? Why is their marriage like effortlessly soaring through the weeks and months and years and getting stronger? And mine is in the valley or there seems to be soaring, and mine just isn't. We're all disciples of Jesus. If it's victory either way, why can't victory come the, uh, the easier way for me? Why can't it come just a little easier for me? Why Aaron Selker at 40? Well, let me end this way. Um, we are not given an answer in the sovereignty of God why this person now and why not this person now we're not given that answer but here's what we do know we do know absolutely that death is not failure actually you know when we when we think about victory either way you know we're think, speaking in terms of success the the 12 go out they're relatively successful john dies neither are failure so success and failure it, rejection or reception may be success so even our categories don't really fit. Death is not failure because the battle to stay alive is not the real battle anyway. What's the real battle? What's the game of life? What are we trying to keep going for? Why are we here? It is not just to stay alive as long as we can for now. That is not the battle. If both reception and rejection can be understood as success, if both the apostles and John the Baptist are victors, though they live and he dies, if death itself is not defeat, defeat but victory, if it's victory either way, what's the real battle? Is failure possible at all? Let me, let me explain it this way. Turn these questions into a few answers that I think we can be absolutely confident about. My son recently kind of got into video games. 
Uh, I don't keep video games in the home, and it, and it, except I do. Um, it makes me feel really superior to other parents who have video games all over the place. I don't really own them, but I borrow them from the walkers whenever they go out of town. And, I, and they go out of town sometimes for like long fundraising trips and they connect it to vacation. So sometimes I have these, uh, these video games for like a month and then I forget to return them for like entire seasons of the year. So um, they have the old Nintendo, uh, Super Nintendo games from the late 90s, which I really like because these are the only video games I know how to play. <laughs> um, and my son's favorite is Donkey Kong Country and it's many sequels. They have all these sequels to Donkey Kong Country. So like most adventure games, if you know Mario and all these things, you gotta keep moving through the levels to reach the end. You know, you beat a boss, you keep moving on through the levels until you reach the final level if you don't run out of lives first. And here's the thing, Charlie and I figured out a way in Donkey Kong Country to keep gaining endless lives. Like you find like these golden bananas or like these golden ostriches, like all these strange things that you can, you know, they're like coins in Mario. And you can get life after life after life. We can amass like 200 lives, but here's the thing. We're actually really terrible at beating the level. So we could, we could arguably stay, like never see game over on the screen but actually not progress at all. It's not the object of the game. We can find a way to never see game over and get absolutely nowhere. What's the object of the game? What game are we playing? What does it mean to succeed? Well, let me tell you something about our adver adversary's goal. In a lot of ways, the Gospel of Mark is a, is a, gospel, is a, is a story about holy war. Not between God and people, not between people and people, between God and the enemy of our souls, God and the devil. He's casting out demons left, right, and center, right? Across scripture, we know the goal of Satan. And it's not to make us die young. That's not Satan's goal. It's not to mess things up for us as much as possible in this life. That's not our enemy's goal. Our enemy's goal is that we will curse God and abandon him. That's our enemy's goal. That's victory for the enemy. Our goal is the opposite. That is the object of why we are here, to cling to Christ if we are received, if we are rejected in, in sickness and health. All the way through, trusting, clinging as he clings to us. This is everything. It is not staying alive as long as you can. That is the battle. Success is clinging to Christ. To be loved by him, to love him back, and to love the world is an expression of that love towards God. As he empowers us to do so, this means death is not failure. Again, what is failure? Let me break it down in really clear terms, because this is how you and I live day in, day out. Any of this sound familiar? It's failure. Listen. Defend against rejection with everything you've got. That's failure. Defend against disappointment with everything you've got. Don't be a loser. Save your life. Build, build, build. Preserve every resource you have, your time, your relationships, your finances, your degrees, your mobility, mental acumen, physical strength. Get all that you can out of it while keeping all the remainder and don't let anything else touch it. Store up all those extra lives. 
is the very definition of the failure of a human life. They're clinging to Christ. In life or in death. It means victory either way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.